He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, August 20, 2022. The four main cases against Donald Trump proceed. I talk about it with our troubadour Dave Gunders at the start of the show. But the highlight is Professor Albert Allschuler. What a legal superstar this guy is. And now he's come up with the perfect way to hold Donald Trump responsible for January 6th. It's called Insurrection, a.k.a. Rebellion. And this guy is fun to speak with, just like back in the day when he was at CU Law. He's a Harvard guy, taught in Texas, then Colorado, before he got his career position at the University of Chicago, hanging out with, oh, I don't know, fellow lawyers, professors like Barack Obama, Elena Kagan, Nino Scalia, well, there's a lot of name-dropping that goes on. With our featured guest, and Alan Dershowitz, boy, did he know Dersh, brought him to our CU Law class. Wait till you hear that discussion, too. But the key is, my smart CU Law professor has come up with the perfect recipe for holding Donald Trump accountable. You have to love that. Jenna Ellis doesn't love that. She comes up as I talk with our troubadour. She came up on the Ari Melber show. Let's give a listen. What was the soundbite that he found so interesting? Our strategy is to make sure that we continue to challenge all of these uh, false and fraudulent results. What is the point of all this? <laughs> well, the point of this, of course, is to get to fair and accurate results because the election was stolen and President Trump won by a landslide. And now this weekend, she gets to go to Missouri to be in a Mike Lindell symposium on election rigging. Tina Peters wanted to be there, but her lawyers could not get her permission to go out of state anymore. It's a complicated story. It all leads back to Donald J. Trump. And we covered the Colorado connections here on this podcast. If you love this show, and I know I do, Give it five stars. Tell a friend. We so appreciate it. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, where you can play me at three times speed. That's cool. I want to recognize that Brian Stelter did a good job at Reliable Sources. Sorry to see him go at CNN. He's been a guest on my show. We will try to get him back. And I'm also sorry about Liz Cheney losing overwhelmingly in Wyoming. Oh, my gosh. Those people are so close to Colorado. At the end of the show, we play her outgoing remarks. But for now, Dave Gunders with his song, I'm So Shy, followed by Professor Allschuler on this episode 110 when we discover the formula for holding Donald Trump accountable. It's simple. It's called insurrection. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a brief word from our friend Michael Bailey. 
gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead, who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Troubadour? Hi, Craig. Hi, Troubadour. Dave Gunders, you are a man of many talents. And honest to goodness, your cabin in the mountains, spectacular. And to know you built that thing, my goodness, you have skills way beyond me. Well, you're being generous with your credit because I really, I knew a lot of guys who have the talent and pulled them together. But yeah, it, it's been a great place for us. And it was great to have you up there. I know. I haven't been there ever before, never been on the backside of some of those front range mountains. It was spectacular. Thanks for taking me. And we got you up. We, we even climbed a ridge together. I think that I, I, I learned a lot about mountain climbing. You know, people just take it for granted that people know things. All my life, I've struggled with hills, inclines. Going up is a problem, going down even more of a problem. And then, gosh, you gave me two tips that changed my life. Do you want to reveal them to the general public? I think you should. No, you go ahead. I want to see if you remember. I remember perfectly. You said, hey, you know, when you're going through these rocks and thistle and scratching your leg up and spraining your ankle. I did sprain my left ankle a one on a scale of one to ten. Not that bad. Almost immediately as we climbed that mountain. I didn't want to complain. And then you gave me the tip a little too late to avoid this slight ankle sprain. Walk like the uh, natives did. Like you have bare feet or get up there a little toward moccasins. You only have moccasins on. Be light on your feet instead of this heavy pounding that you were doing behind me. And you were laughing. You were ahead of me, and I think you were laughing because you knew I was getting hurt. Anyway, that was a great tip, the moccasin tip, right? The moccasin tip. 
All right, tip two, when you're going downhill, get low. Nobody ever told me that, and it's perfect. Why didn't people teach me that a long time ago? Now, you went to mountaineering school, right? I did. I did. At what ages? Well, I went as I asked my dad. There was an ad in the New York Times, which my dad got. It said Mountaineering School, Colorado. Well, I had already had a wonderful image of Colorado because my dad had told me stories of the 10th Mountain Division. And I wanted to go and become a man in Colorado, too. So um, he sent me to a place called the Ashcrofters. It, it was a mount. They call it Mountaineering School. It was camp, but it was camp in the mountains. And they, and they taught lots of skills, you know, how to build a fire, make a shelter, you know, climb mountains. They taught us how to uh, self-arrest on a snowfield with an ice axe, those kinds of things, and some climbing um, skills as well. And I know you loved it because the next year, what did you do? Next year, I went back as a junior guide, and I was able to, uh, I was kind of the second in command when we would go out um, camping and doing things, just kind of watching, watching the boys for the, for the counselor. Cause there would usually be maybe eight of us on, in a, in, in a track. And it, it was helpful to have kind of a second in command that that's what I was. Why didn't you go further? If you had come back the third and fourth year, you might've made it to the top. Is that a mountaineering pun? It, it would have. No, yes. But, and I probably could have, and you know what, you know what, now, now that I think of it, what, what happened was, um, you know, the 60s were kicking in, and I was 16, and my sister influenced me in a number of ways, if you know what I'm talking about. Perfect segue. Um, my, <laughs> my interests changed. All right. Well, let me ask you about this, because every time you talk about school, you had this girlfriend, that girlfriend. I had none of that. I studied. And this show is about my all-time most impactful instructor, and that's uh, Albert Altshuler, my professor at CU Law School. We had Bob Levy on poli-sci at CUC, but I became involved as prosecutor because I liked the way this guy talked about criminal law and criminal procedure, stimulated my mind, and it was great. But what about you? Was it all just females, or did any instructor impact your life? You know, you asked me earlier about that, and I said I said something kind of CAD, you know, something... Uh, off the cuff that none of them, I, I forgot all of them, but that's not true. I did have some really good teachers. The ones I remember from when, from my youth, like my second grade teacher, mm-hmm. Mrs. Bletch, who taught me to love to read. We would have reading hour and Bletch. I used to love. How do you spell Bletch? Bletch. Oh my <laughs> Bletch. God. Probably I how you spell it. It's a horrible Bletch. sounding name. I know. But what she was, was her first name? She, Mrs. And she was sweet and she taught us to read and love reading. How did she look? Like a bletch. (laughs) Now, right before we came to record, I said, I want to talk about Jenna Ellis because I know her. She's caught up in this scandal. She had a court date in Larimer County where she was ordered to appear in Georgia. And she's supposed to tell the truth to the grand jury. She went on Ari Melber back then. They just replayed it where she said, Trump won, and he won in a landslide, and we have the evidence, and she smiles, and I'll never forget what you just said. Do you remember what, how you reacted? I said it can't, like it was automatic. I said it, it fell out of her lips, like without any thought. It was rehearsed. No, you said something else, too. That she was cute? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm glad I didn't have to pull that out of you, Ben. 
Is All that right. your honest assessment? Well, I think, you know, she, is, she was, she was I, I guess it must have, have been. Have you ever seen somebody on TV and then seen them in person? Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I have. Well, I, like I've been on TV, you've yeah. seen me. I've, yeah. I, I know Jen Ellis in person. Right. Okay. Yes. Not as cute as on the TV. Well, here's the thing about Jenna. She's got a gazillion Twitter followers and she put out there this week about how the women on MSNBC are ugly like Rachel Maddow and they're not hot like the conservative women, such as Jenna Ellis. And you just provided confirmation that you think she's hot. Well, I said she was cute. You know, let's move on. She's not. Okay, good. If you saw her in person. Yeah. We talked about my food phobias quite a bit when I was going up to Grand County, right? Because it's... And I mentioned, of course, pickles, tomatoes, mustard. Right. But cottage cheese. Tuna. No, cottage, let's focus on cottage cheese. Yeah. Do you like that look? I, I don't even want to tell you about cottage cheese because you'll get mad. No, I don't like the way it looks on in food or on a person. Definitely not on a person. Have you ever seen a person whose legs look like cottage cheese? I don't want to think about it. Yes. Are you familiar it's called with the con- cellulite. Cellulite. Yes. Right. And you really, and do you think that's cute? No, and let's forget about it. If she has cellulite, great. Well, I don't, I didn't know, I don't say want to focus like on that. it. Was I a mean, flippant maybe there little... is a song. We usually talk about songs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you like big butts? <laughs> and you cannot uh, lie. No, I don't. Okay. So I'll let you, when you review the transcript, correct the record. But the song that you bring to the table this week is what? Well, you, you, it was your selection. I'm so shy. Right. It was a scatterbrain, a scatterbrain song. It was one of the early songs that I think that was my song uh, that I brought in. It had to be your song. It was silly. No, it had some deep stuff in there. Hardly. (laughs) Now, to remind everybody the scatterbrains, who are they? What are they? What was it all about? So, my good buddy T. Valadares and I, we founded that band in 19. 80 in Boulder, and we played ska music, some some reggae. We played uh, new wave music, like the you know the Cars, the Police, Talking Heads, and stuff like that. And our own music. We started, uh, you know, we 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 wrote quite a bit, so that at at the end we were probably doing at least half of our own music. And you know what I was doing, 1980. You were studying at CU Boulder Law School, studying with Professor Altshuler, our our guest. Now, do you get it? I Why get it, same time frame. It's not just that. We probably I, passed on the street. I think so. Where did you play? Where oh, can... we played all the places. I mean, we played the Blue Note a lot. If you ever went down, that was the kind of the premier. That, that was the premier that, club that was, on Pearl Street. It was yes. a great club, great club. And Walrus and J.J. McCabe's. and uh, J.J. McCabe's, I definitely. That was fun. And the Walrus. I may have seen you there. Those were fun. And we played Glenn Miller Ballroom. And we used to, we were popular on, on campus with the kids. And so we, uh, we used to sell out Glenn Miller Ballroom. We played Boulder uh, Theater. And so all those places. Oh, my God. I didn't know you played Boulder Theater. That's cool. We did. We had a New Year's. Uh, the New Year's, it was probably New Year's 81 or something like right. that. Right. And we then had the just a few years ago, you played Folsom Field. So you guys own Boulder. You do. 
and this song is perfect, but I'm going to give you a voice. Should I put up the YouTube? Because you are a dancing fool. Well, yeah. Is it okay Um, for me to put it up? Because I think you're a good dancer. Sort of like a bunny. You have so much energy. You hop a lot. What's that about? (laughs) Well, I have a guitar in my hands. So that kind of focuses. You have to focus on it. Is it hard to play while you're hopping? You learn. (laughs) You are something. People can watch it. I'll link it on the show notes. I I was definitely enthusiastic. It was fun. I mean, we were 28. 28 years old, and uh, life was good. It was it's gr- like it was you great. had moccasins on, the way you were dancing up there. See? Yes. Back. You are nonstop, my friend, but here's why I'm so shy and so perfect. This show, we have solved the case. All you have to do is charge Donald Trump with insurrection. And you don't have to say he planned it with the Proud Boys or he did this with Roger Stone or... And we know he did with Steve Bannon, although Lauren Boebert, whoever. You just focus on the fact that an insurrection was going on right a mile away of Pennsylvania. He knew he had started it. He knew about them being armed. He knew what their grievance was. So let's say it got out of control and it wasn't his intention for that to occur. But once it happened, he tweeted about Pence failing him and all that. So he assisted the insurrection, regardless of whether he conspired, and we know he did. But all he has to do is assist and and show that he was on that side. And you have a case, and it carries up to 20 years. You're barred from ever serving again. It's like it's made for this. There are other charges that are provable, but this is a slam dunk And I don't know why Merrick Garland is so shy. Maybe he's waiting for everything to fall in his lap. Right. Does that make sense to Uh, you? Absolutely. And we talked about that a few episodes ago. I think it was a sin of omission. I think somehow that Trump Trump should be charged with some... Nobody assisted them. Okay, he assisted. But being commander-in-chief and not speaking up, calling off the mob... Being silent for those 187 minutes, whatever that they were, um, to me, has to, there has to be some consequence for that. I don't know what it would be, right. Craig. And people he, say he did nothing wrong. He did things. He called some senators, putting the arm on them. And then he also tweeted against Mike Pence at 224. Right. Like 35 minutes, then Mike Pence failed us. And he had some other controversial tweets assisting the insurrectionists. And then when it was over, he talked about his love for them. So you look for the most simple elements. Like when I made you scrambled eggs the other day. It's it's simple. I can't screw that up. You know, if I try to make you a souffle, I would screw that up. But you have a line in your song about it's never easy. And Merrick Garland... Wait, can you name the four cases against Trump? Which one do you think is going to come come to the surface first? Well, let's see. There's um, there's seditious conspiracy. All right? right, January 6th. Let's put that in one bucket. Insurrection, seditious conspiracy. And the point of my talk with Professor Allshuler is you don't have to go there because maybe there's a gap. Maybe his plan was to appear in the chamber like some hero escorted in by 
Marjorie Taylor Greene and give a speech. And you'd say, well, what about the mob? He could have tweeted, hold off. Oh, absolutely. Right. And yeah. they would they would have waited outside oh, yeah. the Capitol. You know, the guy always likes crowd outside. Right. He likes to say, oh, my God, we're packed. And there are a million people waiting outside. And this time, maybe he would have been right. Anyway, that's why this last charge is easy. You say it's never easy, but it can be easy. The second case on a federal level out of Mar-a-Lago. Looks like the guy had sticky fingers, and Donald Trump's going to take anything about you that he can turn into a profit or extortion material. Shakedown artists need shakedown material, and this guy squirreled it away, just like somebody who goes to a party and stuffs his pockets full of the good food. I mean, it's crazy. That's the kind of guy he is. <laughs> Like so I that, said, that could bring them down with a search warrant. I guarantee they got I what they came for. I am hoping for something like that. Or yeah. worse. Or worse. All right, then you got New York. New York, where he had to take the fifth over 400 times, where Weisselberg has pled guilty. And he's going to testify against the Trump organization, but not against Donald Trump personally. Can, can you explain that to me? Um, no, it makes no sense to me. It's like, is, is it okay with you? If I'm not going to testify against you, Dave Gunders, but I am going to testify against Lookout Renovations. Is that okay? I don't want you testifying against us, but um, no, no, it's, it's, it's true. Donald Trump has had his finger on the pulse of everything that went on in the Trump organization. You know that uh, it wouldn't have been doing with, nothing would have been going on without his knowledge. And you know when that trial is? October 24th. It's coming up. And then you got Georgia. Georgia on my mind, because Jen Ellis is supposed to appear there next week to testify. And they have him on tape asking for those 11,700 votes. I mean, that's an easy case, too. So, uh, except for some shy prosecutors, I think we've got them. Well... Let's see. Have I ever said that before? You have, uh-huh. and I. And what do I say? Let's see. Let's wait and see. He's a slippery character. Slippery. And, and he, you know why you wait? You know why you wait? Because my larger conspiracy thing about being in bed with Putin and uh, MBS and uh, what's happening in Mar-a-Lago, maybe Merrick Garland is saying we're not going to get him for something little. We're going to get him for the whole enchilada. And we can have him do, you know what that guy's done since Mar-a-Lago's search? He's put out some statements, some ridiculous defenses. Gosh, anybody who defends him, what about those stupid defenses? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but he has not granted an interview. You know what else is going on this weekend you might want to attend? Mike Lindell putting on another symposium. Tina Peters wanted to fly there, but seems her lawyers couldn't get her an out-of-state pass anymore. Got to giggle about that. Right. You know who is a guest, though? A star? Jenna Ellis on Mm -hmm. her way to Georgia. Why not stop, I think, in Missouri? Mm -hmm. She's a star on that rigged election Mike Lindell circuit. Right. And uh, and I've known the woman for a long time. I had her on when she would rip Trump right along with me. She claimed to be a Christian, a woman of valor, conservative to her bones. 
But it turns out, well, where is she going to be on Saturday night? Where is she going to be? I've written about her in the Colorado Sun, and it's kind of personal. And Dan Kaplis took her as a great lawyer, a great personification of a wonderful thing. I mean, really, Jenna Ellis? What was that first statement you had before you said that she was cute? (laughs) I'm going to get you for that. Now I got you for that. (laughs) Well, I said, you could see the way it came out of her lips that it was, there was no thought behind it. The statement about, you know, he won the election in a landslide, that kind of thing. You could tell it was just repetition. It was rote. And it's exactly what Trump has been saying. I not only won, I won in a landslide. I not only won the club championship while you weren't looking, I won it going away. And if you can't realize that, Club Pro, and give me the trophy, then I think you're out of a job. Okay, thank you for the trophy. I mean, that's what he's done his whole life. And he thinks he can do it with an election. And amazingly, he lies and people swear to it, like Jenna Ellis. And she does it with a Colorado law license, and that's a problem. I've talked about it on the show. I've talked about a bunch of stuff. Why does she still have it? Well, maybe the people who are supposed to discipline her are shy. Well, let's hope that they get their comeuppance, Craig. It's just so ludicrous, and it's doing harm. It's worse than ludicrous. It's doing great harm to this country. Right, but don't get upset. It's a happy day. I think the evidence is there. Comeuppance, I'm thinking about you, and you're hopping while you're dancing. Listen to this song by Dave Gunders and the Scatterbrains, T. Valladares, and you got to go and watch it on YouTube because our troubadour Dave Gunders puts on a singing performance and a dancing performance. Thank you, troubadour. Thanks, Greg. So shy, I never want to leave the home, and she's so fine. She's gentle on my ego. I don't mind. I'm in a state of vertigo. The boys all tell me to call her on the phone. I got a number, but I'd rather be alone. I've got her on six stations. 
and otherwise a lot of people have so much affection for their pets that must come up all the time what's going to happen to scruffy what can you tell us about that michael bailey what you can do is create a pet trust in colorado you put money into trust and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog and it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years whichever is shorter and then when the time frame for the trust is up you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or i have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals how cool is that you can go to mike bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home whatever i love the way you practice law you've kept it going for a long time tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer so my phone number is 720-394-6887 and again that's 720-394-6887 they can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com and there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hello. Hey, is that you, Professor? Yeah, is, is, is it you, student? Yes, Sari, and I don't normally get to class this early. I think I'm 30 seconds early. But for well, your I, class, for your class, I did it. Well, that's thank you. That's good. So what, what year did you graduate? Because I don't think I've talked to you since you graduated. 1981. I would have thought it was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I would have encountered you... In uh, what the late seventies, because you taught me crim law, and I said, "Whoa, this is kind of cool." Then criminal procedure. You brought in a public defender. You brought in a prosecutor. I think you brought in Alan Dershowitz, and all of a sudden, I knew what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. Thank you. Okay, great. I owe it all to you. Let me introduce you to my podcast audience. 
This is the Jules Krieger Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago School of Law. That's right. He wasn't content to just stay in Boulder and see you law. He had to go to Chicago, where he had Liz Cheney as a brief student. We'll talk about that. So you were a young professor when you taught me, and of course I was younger than you. But weren't you kind of a boy wonder? Oh no, not not. I mean, I was. Let's see. You said you graduated in '81. I was I was 40 already. I taught at I taught at the University. Of Te- I I was a boy wonder at the University of Texas before I came to Colorado. All right. I hope your time is good. How many of these podcasts have you ever done? Uh, this is the first. Oh, my gosh. You know what's great about it is that you can talk to your heart's content. We don't have to run to a commercial break. You can ask for a break. It's kind of like a deposition. It's kind of like this is your life if you have time. But we're going to get to the headlines of the day because I'm just excited to talk to the smartest guy I ever encountered when it came to criminal law and criminal procedure I just read your latest analysis of how to hold Donald Trump accountable. We are talking on a day where Weisselberg pled guilty, and now people say, well, he's not going to testify against Trump, but against the Trump organization. I say, huh? And then others say, well, he's going to use the Fifth Amendment. I say, oh, boy, I have a Fifth Amendment expert on my show. So we're going to get to all that, including all the investigations, and your brilliant insurrection charge. But we have to start with you. If you have the time and the inclination and you don't declare the fifth, I want to know more about you because I've never had this opportunity to deep down interrogate a guy who played a big role in my life like you did. All right. Shoot. Where were you born? Aurora, Illinois. Who were your parents? Uh, my my dad was a uh, lawyer in Aurora, Illinois, small town lawyer, general practice. Um, uh, Sam Allshuler. Uh, his uh, my mother was uh, a school teacher briefly, but mostly a homemaker. And happy childhood. When did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? And by the way, welcome to Craig's Lawyers Lounge, where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories. You've got a million of them, but. Was it because your dad was a lawyer? Was he the first lawyer I, in the family? I think so. No, he wasn't. I, I have on my wall in back of me as we're as we're talking the the first dollar made by a uh, uh, all in the practice of law. That was my uh, my father's uncle, my grandfather's brother. It was eighteen seventy one, and he was re- he didn't go to law school. He read law. You could become a lawyer without going to law school, and he read law. And, and while he was still reading law, not really a member of the bar, um, he uh, represented somebody in a justice court, and it was he was supposed to be the meanest man in Chicago, and it was about paying a poll tax. Now, Illinois. who was the meanest know, man? The client the, or the your client, relative? The client oh, was okay. supposed to be, and. Um, so Uncle Sam, uh, after whom my father was named, uh, put his fee, the four quarters, in an envelope and said it was his first fee for first fee for legal services. And my father just found the envelope kicking around uh, his law office and had the quarters in the envelope framed. And so that was I know exactly when. And my, you know, so my uh, this this guy uh, ultimately became 
a judge on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, uh, appointed by Woodrow Wilson. He'd been the nominee for governor of Illinois in 1900, um, got clobbered. Um, although, although I, some people said he he was he you know it was stole a stolen election. I don't know whether it was or not, but. Uh, uh, so, uh, he, you know, and the story is that when the president called him and offered him this position on the Seventh Circuit, uh, he said, oh, no, you want an educated man. You don't you don't want me. And the president said, no, I want you. And I've read a lot of his opinions and they're awfully good. I mean, they're they're just they're just terrific. I, I can't think of one where I disagreed with him. And so my and so his brother, my my grandfather was a lawyer. Um, he wasn't. His career was wasn't as successful. There came a time when he was suspended from the practice of law for some uh, dirty dealings with a utilities magnet and so forth. Um, so, but and I had a you know my my father's brother was a lawyer in the family firm, um, and his son was a lawyer. So it was sort of you know it was the path of least resistance, although. You know, I decided to go to law school when I, I hadn't decided before. I, I took some courses in college that allowed me to read judicial opinions. And I thought, these are neat. These are more fun than most of the things I'm reading. And so I think I want to go to law school. So that's the, that's more than you want. No, know. no, that was amazing. I brag on being a third-generation Colorado lawyer, but you just beat me and, and quite a bit. That's fascinating. And uh, God bless your family. Uh, and, and I know you have a love of the law, and your writing is just phenomenal. I tell everybody uh, the college you went to. It was some little-known place, right, obscure? Yeah, I went to Harvard for both uh, college and, and law school. Holy cow. Was that through connections like Jared Kushner, or did you qualify <laughs> no, well, I don't know. I think, I think it was they did give they did give me a break. I think they had decided that they uh, had too many rich prep school guys, and they wanted to to bring in some, you know, people from the Midwest who'd gone to public school. And I think I got I think I got a break there. So. Nice, nice. I I'm all for public school education because I had one, and I went to see you law, as you all know. You went to Harvard Law. You've taught at the University of Chicago. You can bust my tender ego, but is there a big difference in the caliber of student? Or did you say, boy, CU really was better than even Texas. It was the best by far. What's your answer? I'll give, I'll, I'll give you Archibald Cox's answer. You remember Archie Cox was the special prosecutor in the Watergate era, yes. and, and Nixon fired him, and it was a big scandal, and so forth. And uh, Archie Cox visited at Colorado when I was teaching there, and there was a, a dull moment in the faculty lounge, and and uh, so somebody asked the obvious question: Well, Archie, uh, what's what's the difference between the Harvard students and the Colorado students? And uh, Professor Cox from Harvard said, oh, oh, there's all the difference in the world, all the difference in the world between the Colorado students and the Harvard students. You can sometimes get an answer from the Colorado students. <laughs> That's, so, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, my sense was uh, 
Uh, I I loved Colorado. I still miss it. Um, it was a it was a, a terrific law school. Um, I mean, I thought the faculty was wonderful. There was there were reasons why some of the wonderful people uh, were not at Harvard and, and Yale because they'd have a writer's block or something. But they were good teachers, didn't you think? I thought they were. Oh, I thought most, for the most part, they were they were terrific teachers, and the students were interesting. They were a lot of them were older. You know, you could. There were people from out of state who, uh, you know, decided and, and, they and, liked- and can I just tell you, do not feel self-conscious about your dog barking because you're in Maine, right? You're Professor Emeritus, and you are doing right. this, and podcasts have dog barking. Your dog is not overwhelming with its bark. I'm guessing under 20 pounds. It's exactly 20 pounds, okay. so you're pretty good. All right, my uh, dogs, the, you can guess their size when they start barking, but don't worry about it. This is a podcast and uh, one of the I, best you know, ever I, because you are so fascinating. Keep going with your nice words well, about Colorado. I, I actually, I'm actually in my study. Usually the dog is, is in my study with me, um, well, but I put in. her out because she does like to bark, and I close the door, but you can still hear her barking. I think I think my wife just came home. She'd been away all day, so I think the, okay, the car just drove into the it's driveway not a or problem, something, something like that. There are no problems, but, because I think right. Donald Trump is finally going down. I've said that for a while, but then wait, I read your minute, article. Wait a minute, Chris. I wait read a your minute. article, I, and now I, I know how to do it. Wait a minute. I was I was telling you about the University of, of the experience of uh, teaching right. at the University of Colorado, I and I was telling no, you some of the students. It's not a problem. Some of the students. Some of the students were older, and they had grown up in New York or other places out of state, and they were with it young people, and they decided they wanted to be ski instructors and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they came to Colorado, and uh, being ski instructors would get stale after a while or they'd break something and they'd say well what do i do now and the default was always law school so there were all these interesting older older students who came to law school all right you want to talk about trump let's no i want to talk about archibald cox because did he come teach at cu law my memory is he went to my undergraduate alma mater the Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Do you remember that? I didn't. I didn't know that, but it's it's perfectly believable. No, he it was a he he taught at Colorado for one summer. Okay. This was after after he'd I been. I may have uh, that wrong. After he'd been the uh, special prosecutor and took all the Watergate stuff that happened. So we and he was a quite wonderful guy, and we were quite in awe of him. So. So how long in total were you in Colorado? Eight years, I think. And before that, you were the boy wonder at Texas. That's a heck of a place too. What did that teach you? Oh, I I uh, I like the Texas laws. It was, it was it's too big. I mean, it was at least from a student perspective. I think there were five hundred students. I I'd have, I had as many as one hundred and fifty students in one class. But it was uh, it was an exciting place. The the, the school was still headed by. I think the best dean I ever had, that Paige Keaton, who, uh, I mean, he had, he had, as dean of the University of Oklahoma Law School, he'd integrated that law school. He'd integrated the uh, uh, University of Texas Law School. He testified for Thurgood Marshall in, in the case, you know, that the separate couldn't possibly be equal. Uh, and uh, uh, while we were, uh, you know, we were, we were dealing with, 
the start of affirmative action, the start of, I mean, the, the first woman hired on this faculty of 50 people. It was, a, it was you know, you can guess it was a little while ago. But it was, it was, you know, I, I loved my years at Texas. Uh, I think I liked, you know, Colorado. Colorado was a more, a more comfortable place, partly because of the size. Right. And you're more liberal than Texas, right? I always judge your politics as progressive, liberal. Am I right? Yeah, I, I lean left, I think. Um, right. That's, and that probably works in Austin, but then you're surrounded in Texas. And maybe we'll get to that. But I want to just highlight something that I noticed about you. Is you were really good at your job. And there's a lot of talk about the Socratic method. But you were a skilled practitioner of that, putting students on the spot, repartee, banter. Well, one, you were a lot older, smarter. Plus, you'd probably heard most of the comebacks before. It's got to be a great job, but you did it perfectly. How did you learn to do that so well? And just tell me about the professor life, because a lot of us with an education think, Gosh, maybe I could have been a professor. Maybe that would have been a good life. Is it? Tell us about all that. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful job. Um, how do you how do you learn to do it? Well, I, you know what I did? I went to law school, and uh, I saw people teach law, and I thought, oh, what what they do is kind of neat. Um, but I'll never have the grades, and and then I had the grades, so I did it. I didn't didn't think about it. It it was it was a uh, you know, and it was it was a kind of a funny job. You could start at the top. I mean, you'd have you'd walk into a classroom the same as the guy who'd been on the faculty for fifty years, and you'd have a case that you wanted to teach, and you'd figure out how to do it. Um, so you didn't in, in a. I mean, you, your title would change and so forth, but you but you were doing essentially the same job from the from the first day to the last. So it was it was it was. Uh, exciting. I mean, mostly you didn't have a boss. You could, you, you were expected to write things, but you could pick what you wanted to write write about. Um, unlike a lawyer who gets a case and uh, you know is 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 limited in in what he can study to to that case. Um, so yeah. It, uh, it but what about I that? Mean, I will, uh, I will uh, tell you. Yeah, please go ahead. I will tell you that. What I miss most about it now, having been retired for a while, is uh, the the personal relationships with the students and and colleagues. Um, I miss that less. I mean, I certainly don't miss grading blue books. I don't miss faculty meetings. Um, I uh, I miss the classroom a little bit, but I, I think more I miss the interaction with students and and uh, colleagues outside of class. You just missed the performance a little. That That's because you put on kind of a nightclub act. You kept my attention during the whole period. I wanted it to be a little longer because you posed provocative questions and you never knew who you would call on next. And the beauty of CU Law School, and I do think it's better than those other places, is because we were small, right? And uh, we only had 150 in each class, not in a classroom, but do you remember CU Law School for being small, intimate? Yes. A perfect yes. place for your nightclub act? I don't think it was a nightclub act. Were you in the class when Irving Younger 
came and did it, did his no. guest stint. I mean, I mean, there now that was a nightclub act. Um, you know, I mean, he would walk up and down the aisles of the classroom and lean into somebody's face and, you know, and tell them, tell them that, uh, you know, you never ask a question on cross-examination unless you know what the answer is going to be. And if you violate this rule, I will come back from the grave and haunt you. And I mean, he was, you know, he put on a show, but I just, I, I engaged in, you know, serious discussion of serious issues, I thought. Okay, perfect. I thought you had a sense of humor. And what would you consider your wheelhouse? Uh, area of the law, something that you can just do about as good as anybody. After reading your articles today, I would put that up there. Your analysis of how to prove Trump guilty, second to none, but I don't know you that well. What do you consider your professional wheelhouse? Oh, my, my field was always criminal law and criminal procedure. That's what I want. I mean, when I, I told you I started at Texas and uh, the dean and the dean said, what do you want to teach? And I said, criminal law. And he says, okay, you'll teach criminal law and sales and sales finance. I said, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, you do one thing you want and one thing that I need, and I need sales and sales finance. So I had to learn sales and sales financing. What about within your what about within your specialty? Would you say the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment? The sixth? Well, I I mean my first I, I think if you you know what when you mention my name to somebody and they want to think about what's what what I've done, uh the the very first thing I did, first major scholarship I did was a study of plea bargaining. And I, I did this as a fellow at the University of Chicago Law School, not, not on the faculty. But I had some Ford Foundation money, and I went around and talked to lawyers about how plea bargaining worked and wrote a series of papers. Uh, first one was the prosecutor's role in plea bargaining. The next one was the defense attorney's role in plea bargaining. And the third one was the trial judge's role in plea bargaining. And uh, uh, I think those were the first, you know, major uh, studies of how plea bargaining actually worked, and I didn't like it. I thought it was. I thought the, the process. I mean, I think I thought the, the 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 process was kind of appalling in in concept, and then when you saw how it how it worked in practice, it was worse. Um, so I think that you know plea bargaining and sentencing uh, are my areas. And jury, I wrote, I've written about a lot of things. You know. Um, the O.J. Simpson trial, juries. Uh, late, lately, I've been writing about pardons. Um, so, I remember the plea bargain talks. I remember how you said everybody says it's too expensive to have every, to have everybody go to trial, but look at the cost of a fighter jet. All it would take is one or two fighter jets. We can build more courthouses. We can have more lawyers. And I sort of liked it. I think Jim Allison was the chief deputy from Denver you brought in, and he looked at you like you were a little mishuga. That's Yiddish for loco. Anyway, bottom line is it was controversial. It stimulated conversation, and I've been thinking about it ever since, even though the system needs some plea bargaining or, or it would break down. So okay. have, you, have you have you backed off I mean, can, at, we can, at we all? Can, we, can, we can have that argument if you want, Craig. No, well, I um, think we did back uh, in the day. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, I think I yeah I I have 
recanted and said it's it is now just too late to talk about getting rid of plea bargaining i uh, but but not not because um we couldn't afford to in fact the latest the latest thing i wrote which is um was a year ago uh was uh, about the effect of plea bargaining on mass incarceration and you know all this talk about how we can't afford to give people trials well so we churn out all of these punishment orders mass produce all these punishment orders and then somebody has to fill them which is why um we've built all these prisons and have uh you know the the highest percentage of the population incarcerated of any nation in the world uh i think i think plea bargaining has you know played a part in that and so you know, it, you, we've only looked at we've only looked at the at the costs at the front end, and it actually has imposed a lot of costs at the back end. Um, and I, you know, one of the things I said back when I was talking about plea bargaining is, if you want to bargain with people, just have you know, what's expensive are the jury trials. I I watched a lot of trials in Philadelphia where, you know, if you took a jury in Philadelphia and got convicted, you'd get socked. But if you took a bench trial. You probably weren't going to get it, even if you were convicted. Um, you weren't going to get a tougher sentence than you would get if you pleaded guilty. And the bench trials were very fast. I mean, the, the prosecutor wouldn't have prepared very much. He could pick up the police offense report and start examining the the uh, uh, complaining witness. But and, isn't there uh, a constitutional right to a jury trial? Of course. Uh, yeah. So who's going to waive and that right? So it's so it's so it's so. It's still unconstitutional. You know, it's still unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional for the same reason, uh, uh, you know, plea bargaining is. Uh, you plea bargain get you get rid of you get rid of a uh, not only the right to jury trial but the right to any kind of a hearing. And in Philadelphia, at least somebody was listening to the evidence, and right. somebody was deciding whether you were guilty or not beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's. Yeah, as opposed to the all-powerful but... prosecutor, right? God, you are tenacious. Yeah. You do want to argue this, but I'm not going to engage because right. we let's, have so much more to talk All about, right. including you. I, I mean, right. now you're retired, and, and yet what you wrote seemed like you were 35 years old and still in Texas. So the bottom line is this. When do you think you hit your zenith? When were you at your all-time best? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think the biologists, I mean, in some ways you start declining it after 25 or something. I don't know. I mean, Not you learn professionally. some things. You, when you were you your things. best I mean, I know some, I know professionally? I don't. Yeah, I, uh, oh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I've certainly slowed down as I've gotten older, make more mistakes. I still, you know, it takes me longer to do the same stuff. Uh, I think it's still pretty good, mostly. Um, so your answer but, is right now you are at your zenith. Yeah, I mean, if you ever if you ever ask a musician that, they will all say, uh, you know, I'm you know I'm 85 years old. And I'm better now than I ever was. But um, you're not 85 yet. Come on, don't no, only eight, only 81. Yes. Yeah, so. Oh my God, you're a youngster. Yeah, right. You're presidential material right now. Just look at who's right. going to be running. <laughs> I'm not, and and I don't think any of these people who you know have been president lately are either. Although, although uh, you know, I'm surprised at at uh, how well Biden handles his his age. Um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Right. Well, maybe. Well, 
I don't know. I think you could, just judging by this conversation. And uh, I'm begging you for one thing, that if Trump gets arrested between now and uh, Friday midnight, I'm going to call you again and we're going to talk about that because I think things are breaking really fast right now. Let's just start with Weisselberg because I'm hearing a lot of legal experts say, He's agreed to testify at an October 24th trial against the Trump Organization, and he just pled guilty to 15 felonies. And the Trump Organization is Donald Trump, and they're saying, well, he's not going to testify against Donald Trump personally. What does that mean? And then how, how, how can he dictate what he testifies about down the road? Everybody has to testify if they're subpoenaed and tell the truth unless they have a privilege. And if he invokes the Fifth Amendment, then the prosecutor could give him immunity, right, and compel his testimony or back to jail he goes. So what do you make right. of this whole Weisselberg thing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm as baffled as, as you are, although I wouldn't be at all surprised if whoever is representing the uh, corporation uh, strikes a deal. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine that this trial, which is going to occur just before the uh, November midterm uh, elections. I'm going to contact I mean, them preemptively and say, the, have you heard of Albert Alshuler and no plea bargains? No plea bargain here. I mean, they oh, may... Oh, but, that's, uh, but the, the, our system is, is plea bargaining. And I would think that, that, you know, I mean, of course I would do it if I were a lawyer representing a client in this, in this system. I'm not, you know, uh, and if I were, you know, I, I think that it can't be good for Trump or any of the other managers of that business to have Weisselberg up there testifying about about uh, crimes that they obviously were were participants in. Whether he whether you know the the prosecutor has agreed not to ask certain questions um, as part of this of this plea agreement, which I guess he can do. Have I mean, you I, ever I heard? I mean, I, there must be more to the agreement than you don't have to testify about Trump, but you do have to testify about business. There's, it's got to be spelled out a little bit more than that. There must got to be some some kind of understanding of how it's going right. to work. Right. I mean, it, it, I think it was he has a severe sentence coming if he backs out of testifying against the Trump organization. It's hanging over his head as a condition of the sentence just imposed. He has to do five months in Rikers Island in the meantime. And uh, I I just wonder how this is going to play out. I, I see it as a PR move. Now, with all your experience in the criminal law, have you ever heard the expression GORT, G-O-R-T? No. That's what you write on a file if you are a prosecutor and you want to adopt the position advocated by the great Professor Alshuler, who mentored a lot of us at CU Law, Gort means guilty or trial. We're not going to play bargain this case. So that's what I would write on the Trump Organization file. Now, they can walk in and plead guilty. They can't go to jail as a corporation, I don't think, but they could be uh, suffering all sorts of sanctions that make it tough. But Let's get on to the good stuff, the ones you wrote about so compellingly. January 6th, first of all, as an American, what did you think of that day? Could you believe it? I mean, it was, you know, absolutely appalling, of course. 
an attack on the capital of the United States to keep uh, from to, to, to prevent the winner of the election from taking office, um, you know, with 114 police officers uh, uh, injured and um, nine possible deaths attributable to, I mean, it's just uh, horrible. It was an arm break-in at the Capitol, and we now know it was aimed at democracy. It's part of a larger plot. Honest to goodness, I think Donald Trump is guilty of the worst crime against America that I'm aware of. And uh, I'm agreeing with uh, with Vice President Cheney, former Vice. Can you believe that? He's not my cup of tea, but his daughter. Let's not leave Chicago before we talk about Liz Cheney on this week where she got devastated at the ballot box. Did you have Liz Cheney in your class? Um, for about two days. I think I think I was too far left for her or something. She she dropped the course. Oh, no. Did you hear from other professors so about her? her? I, had, I had to teach her everything she knows in two days. <laughs> yeah, yeah she's, uh, she's still pretty conservative. See, she sized you up, but uh, you were a great professor. She should have stuck in there. It could help her right now because... I think you've stumbled on the perfect way to convict Donald Trump for the events of January 6th. And uh, I, I, I give it to you because you're smarter than I am. Plus, as a former state prosecutor, I don't know the U.S. code the way you do. I never looked at the insurrection law, but that's where the answer lies. Am I right? Well, yeah, this is a, this is a piece... Um if you if you type my name into Google, anybody who's who's listening to this can can look look for it. Um, uh, and you I, spell I mean, it A L S C H A L S C H U L E R, and it's a it appears in a in a uh, I don't know what you call it a, a blog I guess um, called Just Security. Um, Prestigious blog. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, uh, the uh, I'll link so it. I'll link it in the podcast. There's a statute that yes. says that says aiding and giving comfort to an insurrection is a serious felony, and that is exactly what Donald Trump did on the afternoon of January sixth. I mean, you know, all this, these Fox News personalities and his son and his daughter and all the everybody in the White House and people in Congress are calling up saying, "You got to call off your dogs. You got to ask them to leave the Capitol." And he says, "No." You know, I mean, here's a guy who's who's uh, sworn by the Constitution of the United States to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, and he's in a better position to uh, bring this thing to a stop than anybody else, than any cop, than, than the National Guard. I mean, you know, probably if he says, please leave, people will leave. And he doesn't do that. He just eggs them on. He's in the middle of the, the rioting. Um, I mean, he gets a phone call from uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville saying, I can't talk to you. They're taking all of us out of the chamber, House chamber. They're, they just took the vice president out. And uh, so he knows the president knows all this uh, rioting is, is going on and the vice president is in danger. And he sends out a tweet saying Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. And, you know, it it. it if you saw the last hearing of the uh, of the uh, select committee, the House committee on on January sixth, you saw these these two uh, 
officials in the in the uh, Trump White House who's who's at that moment that that tweet is sent saying that's pouring gasoline on the flames. I mean that the statute. Doesn't that just exactly fit the statute, giving aid and and comfort to the insurrection? There there are four words under 2383, and this is such brilliant analysis. And I have to confess that I I emulated you quite a bit when I taught taught at uh, the Denver Police Academy in co-ate crime. And so that's for a crime that didn't quite come off, right? The laws of conspiracy, attempts, solicitation, and complicity. And you make the brilliant point that a lot of us would uh, bet our our bottom dollar that Trump's guilty of seditious conspiracy and disgustingly with the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the scum of the earth. But to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, there are gaps unless you get somebody to turn like Mark Meadows, maybe Pat Cipollone will get there if you can get by his privileged claims. But it's going to be hard to prove that he entered into a formal agreement with these people who stormed the Capitol. So that, well, I, I, I can yes. tell you what Liz Cheney probably learned in her two days in your class, because it's probably the first time I thought about it. I had a smart guy from Harvard telling us it's not enough to commit a criminal act. You need mens rea. You have to prove what was in a guy's mind, and that's not so easy, Miss Cheney. And she probably thought it was easy and left, but I was intrigued because isn't that what it boils down to, proving what was in Trump's head? Yes. I mean, that's true with almost every crime. Uh, There are two elements, the required act and the required mental state, and it really helps in thinking about uh, whether somebody's guilty of a crime to separate those two things and say, and to say, do we have evidence of the required act? Do we have evidence of the required mental state? Now they can be, it can be the same evidence. I mean, there's one of the things that people say about all these fraud charges that are, you know, that it seems that uh, Trump and his associates have, have committed is, well, maybe he believed that, maybe he believed all this stuff. I mean, he believed that the election was stolen and he actually believed every claim of uh, fraud, however preposterous it was and and uh, uh, however many people told him it was crap. Um, you know, maybe he's just the kind of guy who might believe. Well, I mean, in fact, as you know, uh, Greg, prosecutors have much less evidence of, of criminal intent than exists against Donald Trump. I mean, you, you, if, some, if you get somebody who's a fraudster and you show he tricked people, he was saying things that weren't true, the jury is going to say, yeah, and he knew it. Of course he knew it. We'll find that he knew it beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, am right. I wrong? No, no, they're walking on eggs. And to an extent, right. though, you give in to it and say, you know, a jury may not buy it, but here's an easier way to go. Because you look at 2383, he doesn't have to join a partnership with anybody. And he uses right. the word insights. Well, there again, you're going to have to say, well, when he used the words. But how about that tweet at 224 about Pence? But even then, you get better. The fascinating thing is that the statute says, sets on foot the insurrectionists. Holy cow. They nailed it. He really did set those people on foot toward the Capitol. But again, you don't even have to go there or the fact that he engages in it. And I love your hypothetical about what if he did show up. That's fascinating. But you boil it down to the word assist. 
Did he assist the insurrection during that 187 minutes? And arguably, if he would have just stayed silent, well, maybe he's guilty. But he did some affirmative things, like call Tuberville and put out those tweets. And then afterwards, he confirmed that he liked what they did by his love video. You nail him. And all the prosecutor has to prove is that he knew an insurrection was going on. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt that this got away from him. And he didn't know. But once it got away, he assisted it. He assisted it. He's guilty. Lock him up. You know, one of the one of the things that um, I think works in Trump's favor is the fact that he, play, you know, he's at the end of the rally. He says, march to the Capitol and I'm going to be there with you. And he goes into the limousine after the and the Secret Service says, we can't provide security. We're not going to take you. And he's furious. I mean, there's some, you know, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, the aide to Mark Meadows, uh, hears uh, from uh, somebody who was in the limousine uh, that that Trump actually grabs for the steering wheel and uh, assaults the driver. And uh, but everybody, you know, and that 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 seems to be disputed. But uh, but it's not disputed that he's just furious and he orders them to take him to the Capitol and they don't do it. They take him back to the White House. Well, is that incriminating evidence or is that exculpatory evidence? Why, if he intended this rioting to happen, would he want to be there? The boss doesn't go to the riots personally. You think he's going to smash the windows himself and assault the police officers himself or give directions to do that, give tactical directions? What is he going to? And he wants to go. What what does he want to do when he gets there? And and, uh, we don't know the answer. You know, that's a big gap in the evidence. We don't know. Uh, Hutchinson, who's, I mean, clearly the most important of the uh, witnesses that the select committee has has uh, got to cooperate, um, uh, gives you a little hints. And there's a lot of talk about going into the House chamber, which is where they are meeting to certify the results of the election. Well, you know, what is he going to do in the House chamber? Is he going to ask to speak? I mean, it's it's all it's all very iffy. But most of the things that you that seem plausible are things that are incompatible with um, the, the rioting that actually happened. So maybe he didn't want to do it. I mean, I don't, you know. Maybe no, he, but you, maybe you, you, you draw on some beautiful clues about what possibly was going to happen, and that's the problem with that part of the case, because you can say it's ridiculous, but Trump is ridiculous in a lot of the things he believes, and he is Meshuggah enough, I'm using the word again, to believe outrageous things if it favors him. So I do think that Rudy talked to Cassidy when she walked him out and he said, are you excited, Cassidy? It's going to be a great show. The members are going to be there. And this is your hypothetical. And I think it's kind of accurate that a lot of his supporters were going to walk him in and start applauding and saying, we salute you, sir, and he would have gotten the delay, and there might have been a confrontation with Pence, but if he was going to pull all that off, I think he just wanted the crowd there as kind of support because he's always saying, oh, you should see the crowd outside waiting to get in here. You know, that's part of his shtick, and and who's to say he didn't think that? 
And, and I'll tell you that uh, the one time I was in the House chambers at the invitation of Jared Polis for Bibi Netanyahu's speech, that sort of set a precedent for, you know, we're going to have people here even though one side doesn't like it. I just, I flashed on all that as I'm reading your piece, but play out your hypothetical further. I got so stimulated reading your entertaining writing on what's the most plausible thing he might have done if he actually showed up. Well, you know, he's a, he's a showman. He's always been a showman. I think that's, I think one of the reasons he has these dedicated supporters is that they're just amused by him or entertained. Um, and uh, so he goes, he could go into the house chamber and, According to the rules of the House and the Senate, he's got the privilege of the floor, although those rules don't apply at a joint session and there are no other rules. So we don't know whether he has the, the privilege of the floor, but he has the power. I mean, let's assume he can go onto the floor. He isn't allowed to speak unless except at the invitation of, uh, of Congress. That's how he gives the, the State of the Union address every year. The House sends it, the Congress sends him an invitation. Um, so maybe somebody stands up and moves, may the, may the president speak, I second the motion, let's have a vote. The poor parliamentarians are, you know, utterly flummoxed by the whole thing. They don't know what's going on and because there are no rules and no presidents for joint sessions. Um, and maybe maybe uh, poor Pence, who's the presiding officer, has says we'll have a vote. And either they let him talk or they, or they don't. And the television cameras are all there and they're doing a uh, split screen and if they don't let him talk maybe he uh, maybe he decides he's going to talk anyway they can't shut him up and why aren't they willing to listen to him and maybe pence has to order him escorted out of the chamber i mean it could be a really really dramatic show um but it wouldn't be aided by people trying to break into the house chamber while this is, is going on right i mean what would his what would his supporters do if they got the word that the president is making a last pitch uh, to throw out the, all the electoral votes. In the, he's in the chamber, he's making this pitch. Are they still going to go on with their violent plans? Um, you know, or would I, this would I, be very different. Can, uh, can I contribute to your hypothetical? Sure. All he had to do was himself or Dan Scavino put out a tweet. Please stand by, like the Proud Boys. Please stand by while I address the nation from the House chambers. Exactly. I mean, he would have, he could have, he could have done what he refused, you know, because once he's frustrated and he can't carry out whatever his plan, I mean, we don't know what his plan is, but whatever it is, we know he can't carry it out. And he goes back to the White House, very frustrated with the, uh, with the Secret Service, very frustrated with Pence, who, quote, didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. And he refuses to call off the riot. He refuses to have. But if he weren't so furious, um, you know, why, would, why wouldn't he call off the riot? Did he really have anything to gain from this riot? Did he really think it was going to, um, uh, you know, keep him in office somehow? Uh, it seems very unlikely that this that this uh, could have succeeded. You know, once the once the National Guard got uh, got mobilized, uh, which took a long time. Right, but he had um, some uh, House uh, members who were going to do his dirty work. Don't you believe it? And Kevin McCarthy probably heard about it. He was panicked that it might happen. What do you think of Kevin McCarthy? And don't you think certain of these House members were involved? And now the DOJ has some cell phones. Don't you think this is all going to come out? 
I don't know what what will come out. I mean, it's it's the select committee. Um, I guess finally issued some subpoenas, but hasn't done anything. To, you know, and the and these McCarthy and others have uh, not complied with the subpoenas, and nothing nothing has been done to enforce them. I, I think that's the the current situation, and it's easier to get testimony in the in Congress than it would be for the Department of Justice to get testimony from these guys uh, before a grand jury because the Constitution says that um, for speeches in either house, you can't be called into question anywhere else. And the Supreme Court has interpreted that very broadly so that a grand jury can't ask questions of members of Congress um, about anything that has to do with legislative business. Congressmen right. do some things that are not legislative business, and they can be required to answer about those. But they they can't be, and so so that you know they can all go into the grand jury and 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 uh, plead it, plead uh, speech and debate clause. But they can't do that before Congress because they it says you can't be required to answer in any other place. Meaning you can be required to answer to Congress, and there have been uh, people who've. Uh, been uh, subpoenaed and disciplined for, uh, you know, members of Congress who were disciplined and and uh, fined for noncompliance with House rules and so forth by Congress itself. There are so many tentacles to this. One person who did show up before the January 6th committee, I considered her to be a brave game changer. Cassidy Hutchinson, I wrote about her, and uh, you were nice enough to take notice of my column, but Probably because you had the same reaction. She was an important witness, right? She was awesome, yes. I mean, as you said, the perfect prosecution witness. I mean, she's poised. She's thoughtful. She's, uh, she's doing this. She, she had access to a lot. Um, uh, and uh, she's doing this at a great personal cost. She has nothing to gain by it and has something to lose. So she's a you know, terrific witness. So how did this? Although, although yeah, as I, as I yeah said you pointed out that, there was some gap, but uh, it yeah. was such a limited presentation. But point out to everybody because, right? I wrote a column about how she's a perfect prosecution witness and true to form, just like back in the day in Boulder. You found a way to say, well, maybe she wasn't completely perfect. Tell everybody about it. Well, um, yeah, I mean, she's her. As I say, the only hints we get about what. The president meant to do when he goes to the Capitol come from her testimony, and uh, according to uh, apparently the first she hears about that the president wants to go to the Capitol um, is from Rudy Giuliani four days before uh, January sixth. They're walking out of a meeting, and Giuliani says, "Are you excited?" Uh, and she says, "I don't know anything about it. What's, what's going on?" And he says, "Oh, it's going to be great. Uh, he's going to go." Uh, to the into the into the Capitol, uh, he's going to be with the senators and the and representatives. He's going to look very powerful, and uh, uh, so that's supposedly the first she hears of it. Well, there's a lot of back and forth apparently. Some people in the White House think this is a terrible idea. The the White House counsel that you know keeps keeps lobbying her and saying no, you got to stop this from happening. But the president keeps thinking that he's he's going to go whatever whatever it is he's he's going to do and he announces it from the stage at the end of his rally. Um whereupon uh, Hutchinson gets a phone call from Kevin McCarthy 
the minority leader of the House saying, what's going on? Uh, I don't, uh, you know, you have been, you told me all week he's not going to come to the Capitol. Why are you, why were you lying to me? Well, Hutchinson didn't know that, uh, that the president had said this on the stage. And she says, I wasn't lying to you. He's not coming. And uh, McCarthy says, yeah, he just said it from the stage, you know, and she says, well, I'll look into it and and and, uh, and let you know. But um, how I mean, how if she learned of it four days earlier when when uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani says he's coming, how could it be that he's that she's been telling McCarthy he's not coming? For all week is is the language McCarthy uses. It may not be literally a week. Um, it may be the same four days or this, a couple days or or whatever. But but obviously um, she's had more conversations. I mean, she's this could not have been her first conversation with McCarthy. There are references to uh, you know his. Did you think he's coming to my office? There must have been. Was there some talk about coming to his office? Um, you know, I think that, that it, it doesn't seem consistent to say that uh, uh, she's been telling McCarthy no uh, all week. Right. But when, uh, you, when and, you're under siege, an hour feels like a week, right, to Kevin McCarthy. Right. I don't know. I got to push back against you because I remember back in the day we used to do that. Now, all those years of teaching, tell us about the most memorable People, the lawyers, the powerful lawyers, maybe you went to law school with them at Harvard, maybe you taught them in Chicago, maybe even at CU, but do some name dropping now. Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I hate I hate to do that. I mean, I, well, in Chicago, uh, well, Chicago, yeah. Chicago I, you know, I, was, I, uh, I had an office not far from Barack Obama and uh, Elena Kagan was a, a colleague and uh, you know, it was, was kind of awesome. I mean, I moved in there and, and uh, you know, Ed Levy, the attorney general under Ford, is is one of my colleagues. I mean, they were, you know, the faculty was, I, I played tennis. This was before I was on the faculty. I played, had a regular tennis game with Nino Scalia. Um, so, you know, you do run into some, you do run into some some people who occasionally get in the, their names in the well, news. What was Scalia yeah. like? Um, um he was fun. He was good, but he was. I mean, he had so. I, my one Scalia story. I mean, it, it was um, we used to play on these nice clay courts at the faculty club, and I we one day we'd reserved this court, and they'd screwed up, and we didn't have a court. Um, so, you know, Nino is gonna is bawling out the manager and. Uh, being very difficult. And I said, come on, come on, let's go find another court. And we wind up on this municipal court with cracked, you know, concrete and metal nets that are sort of sagging and we're playing. And there are a couple guys, teenagers in uh, in street shoes and cutoffs playing on the next court. And one of them hits a ball back of the fence and go you know, in back of where uh, Nino is preparing to serve. And he goes to pick up the ball and uh, uh, Nino wheels around and says, hey, you're not supposed to walk in back of somebody when he's serving. Don't you know anything about court etiquette? And I thought, you know, these are these look like they might be kind of tough kids. I wonder, I wonder how they're going to respond to how they're going to respond to that. 
And this kid says, "Oh, gee, I'm sorry, sir." And so it wasn't. It wasn't. But you know, he he wasn't. You know, it, Scalia was probably of, packing. I, I he probably had a gun, so he wasn't worried. Um, no, yeah. you know, was yeah. he a nice guy? I mean, did you beat him? Yeah, he's very, very. Yeah, I mean, very charming and funny. Who won? And, Who wanted tennis generally? Oh, I, you know, I wound up with. You know, this this was before I was on the faculty. I was there for a summer fellowship. And I asked people, who is the worst tennis player on the faculty? Because I'm no good. And I, you know, and and there was a general consensus that Nino was the worst tennis player on the faculty. But he still beat me quite regularly. I think I think he won most of the games. So. Now, was there a time when you'd walk around and see Barack Obama and Elena Kagan and say, hey, Barack, hey, Elena? Yeah, Sure. Holy um, cow, did you see uh, their potential then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I thought from the day I met him that Barack Obama was going to be the first black president of the United States. Very, very, very wonderful man. Uh, I mean, I never understood. I mean, I can understand how people don't like his politics. and uh, But I can't understand the personal venom that people had for him because he's just such a a sweet man well well, what's up with that reverend Wright? i mean that threw a lot of us for a loop even oprah i think got involved in talking about that and ben uh, belairs and bernadine dorn i mean those were real people who really had i mean you're to the left but they were the radical left oh yeah and i don't think uh, barack ever uh you know uh was as far left as any of those. I mean, I don't think, you know, I, it was that sort of a bum raft. Right, right. By Time has right. proved that. And that's why right. I, I wish America w- would calm down because I can kind of understand before he was elected, he was new to the scene. We heard about some of the associations and we wondered, but my God, he's served eight years. He's been out of office. He's a great family man. He hasn't done anything wacky that I've seen, you know. So give it a rest. He was a good president, yeah. decent, decent man. So can we move on? But no, no, no. We have this. I don't know what's going on in America right now, Professor. Educate me. Huh. Well, I think you do know what's going on. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a very challenging time. I mean, you said, you know, I mean, this week we see that, you know, how, what was it? Two thirds of the Republicans in, in uh, Wyoming. Uh, It was a beat down. Liz Cheney couldn't even get 30%. That's with uh, non-Republicans allowed to vote for her too. Right. And they're Um, just a hundred miles away from us in Colorado. Do you realize that? Yeah, that's, but, but I mean, that's the real problem with America. It's not, it's not, Trump. It's not uh, Kevin McCarthy. It's uh, it's the people who vote for him. I mean, who swallow this stuff? Who are? I mean, what? How? I, I mean, you know, this this the uh, January sixth committee has very. I thought tech. I thought it was tactically wise. Maybe it's not. Maybe it wasn't. But all of their witnesses are Republicans. All, most of their witnesses are, are people who worked for Trump, who supported Trump, who thought Trump did good things. Um, I mean, this Rusty Bowers guy in Arizona says he'll still vote for Trump over. Although, over Biden. although in fairness, um, he he's taken that back now. 
course, he got oh, defeated I didn't know too. That. I didn't yeah, know nobody that. has taken that um, back. But I mean, so so you know, when you're willing to vote for somebody who's just openly, totally corrupt in every way, mean, abusive, um, lying. I mean, what what is? Yeah, okay, it's not a majority. It's never been a majority, but it's forty percent or something. I did, yeah. uh, there's something really wrong with with uh, a country that where where people don't care about this corruption. Um, I you, think you've been getting up ten notes. But it's partly, you know, it's part, you know, if you want to explain Wyoming, it's that they're watching nothing but right. but Fox News, and every time, you know, somebody says, "Look at the look at this." Um, uh, yeah, rioter like assaulting a police right. officer right. with his own shield, and yes. look at how much pain he's in. They 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 managed to come up with the worst scene they've ever they could find from some Black Lives Matter right. uh, thing. No, no, it, say, it's terrible. Why aren't they investigating that? And you know they've got to, got everybody convinced that this is an entirely one-sided proceeding and and uh, it's a kangaroo court and if you watch nothing but fox news i guess you can understand how how decent people could could uh, uh, but it still bothers me it's still right. i still think and yeah, throw talk still, throw, says ta- really yeah, throw, throw talk radio into the mix throw rush slimbaugh me rest just rest yeah. all right but you brought up fox news and an evidentiary component of your case is that Trump was watching Fox News for that 187 minutes. And I heard Cassidy Hutchinson say that, but it didn't appear she was ever in the room with Trump. How do we have the actual evidence that he had it on Fox News? Uh, I don't know. I think she she was in the room at one point. She gets a, a call from... Um, uh, Congressman Jordan or somebody who they've, and she walks in with the phone because he's calling okay, on some right, weird right. cell phone. She, and he walks, she that, walks right. in and, and they're having a meeting. So, so she is briefly in the room. Um, uh, but uh, uh, maybe it's a, maybe I mean, you I can you, you can I mean, take I, judicial notice that Trump probably had an honor or something like that. I I don't know. I I'm just thinking I, about I, their defenses. But Fox News even was broadcasting what was going on, and that's how you proved that he knew about the insurrection and he assisted it by doing nothing and tweeting, just like you yeah, make the they, point. I mean, I think they probably are pretty solid on, on the Fox News because they do have testimony from people who were in the room, uh, like um, like uh, Cipollone and, yeah. and McEnany. Um, uh, they just seem to be giving very limited testimony. They won't tell you what what Trump said, but they could tell you. But I think they they could have told you that Fox News was on playing on the TV, right? And then he's going to say, "Well, he wasn't even watching. It was just background. He was focused right. on the economy, something like that." I hope Merrick Garland is focused on Trump. Isn't he a Isn't he a Harvard guy? What do you know about Merrick Garland? Yeah, he went to the Harvard law school. Um, he had. I mean, I think, you know, Obama picked him for the Supreme Court because he's a, he's, he doesn't lean very far left. He's a, uh, he's a former prosecutor um, uh, he's, uh, and very respected guy. I mean, very, very decent man. Where, I think where, where, was, been, where was the location of his biggest prosecution ever? Oh, he prosecuted, the, um, he prosecuted the Oklahoma, uh, McVeigh and the Oklahoma City. And where was bombing. that at? What? Where did that trial take place? 
Oklahoma City, right? Denver, Colorado. It got transferred oh, yeah, to Richard right. Mage. It was, yes. transferred to, it was transferred to Judge Mage. I remember that. Yeah. Yes, there you go. Whatever See, happened to Judge Mage? He's, he's he probably passed away. But he, yeah. he, he terrorized. I mean, he, uh, he worked with a lot of lawyers. He always scared me a little bit, but that's because I'm not that used to federal court. What about your fellow professor, John Eastman? What do you make of his role? Did you know him in all your travels? I did not know him. He was a University of Chicago uh, graduate. I mean, all of these all of these guys seem to have gone to the University of Chicago. I mean, the, Jacobs, the uh, uh, Pence Council, mm-hmm. uh, was a Chicago Jacob, graduate. But he was... Right. He was not one of mine uh, either. Uh, I think all of these right wingers dropped my class after two days or something. I don't know. But um, but uh, what about Pat uh, I, mean, the guy, the, I was I was very close to the student who wrote the, the you know the Texas abortion law that says anybody anybody can sue anybody civilly Holy for cow. hating an abortion that occurs. I mean, so yeah, he was he was a student of mine, um, and. Uh, uh, well, yeah, you don't you? I, I mean, one of the coolest things about going to law school, from my perspective, was listening to other people who got called out of nowhere by a professor like Alshuler, who said, "What do you think about that?" And probably within a minute, you could size up the person, their intelligence, but also their politics a little bit. And then, as the class progressed, you would have. This guy's conservative, this guy's liberal, this guy's a little in-between. I always tried to be that in-between guy because that's my politics. But am I right about it? Heck, I only did it for three years. You did it for your whole life. Don't classes right. kind of break down like that? Well, I, you know, I always, you know, you were not only my student, Craig, you were my research assistant. And I, uh, I really valued the fact that you told me I was full of crap. Uh, more than any other research assistant I've ever had. And you were usually right. I mean, you were used, not always, but usually right about that. And I, I appreciated that. So You're welcome. Um, okay. That was the whole, now we can end the podcast. Perfect. No, that's uh-huh. it. I've been okay. fishing for that. No, didn't you bring Dershowitz to our class once? I might have, yeah, probably. Well, yes, how do you I, feel I'm about sure. Durst now? Now, you have to know him really well. What happened to the guy? I did a night at the Paramount Theater with him. It was really, it was sold out. I was the lone guy asking Alan Dershowitz. It's sort of like you. He knew Barack Obama. He knew Clarence Thomas. He knew this. He knew that. And it was really entertaining, just like this is. But that's the only night I ever met him. I bet you knew him pretty well, did you? Well, he started teaching uh, my last year in law school, and I took two classes from him. And we uh, we were very close uh, for quite a while. When he, I mean, his his when I was teaching at Colorado, uh, he showed up with his son Elon, who uh, uh, you know was looking at was looking at schools, and I said. You don't want to go to the University of Colorado undergraduate. I mean, this is a kid who's who's had, uh, I mean, he had a he had brain cancer and surgery, and he had difficulty reading for a while after that. I mean, it was it, it was a one. I mean, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, and uh, but somehow, and you know, I said Colorado College, go go to go to Colorado College. That would be a good place. Uh, but he's not. He wound up at, at CU, uh, and I saw a fair amount of. Both him and Alan, uh, 
while while Elon was only he only lasted a year. He was in one of these big dorms and people were using drugs and I don't know. It was uh, you know it was it was not a good experience for him. Um, I don't and you know he went on and had a, had a distinguished career I think in in film. Um, but uh, so we were you know I was quite close and and Alan and I would talk about professional things too and then came the oj simpson trial and i wrote a piece about um the ethics of the oj simpson defense team and was uh you know and did a lot of it socratically you know would you do you know here's what they did would you would you do it (laughs) but uh, um and some of the things i thought were defensible and some of them weren't but i had a footnote that um, uh, said something about how Dershowitz, you know, that somebody had proposed investigating, Dershowitz had proposed investigating a couple of jurors and had to be reminded by Johnny Cochran that the judge had forbidden investigating jurors, which I didn't think was, you know, I thought it was kind of ironic that the, that the, you know, street lawyer was was having to remind uh, the Harvard professor of his uh, legal obligations. But but so I had that in there. I'd taken it. I'd taken it from Kardashian's book about the. Uh, I mean, it wasn't Kardashian. He he, but he was the source for what whatever Schiller was the was the the named author. Very good, very good book. But um, so so. Alan blew up about this because he said it never happened. I said, okay, it never happened. Um, but I, he says, why didn't you check it with me? And I said, I deliberately you know, decided to just go from the, these memoirs. I, I read all the memoirs about the, the Simpson trial, and I decided not to uh, talk to you or anybody um, uh, about it because Everybody would, you know, everybody would say that whatever anybody said about him was untrue, and everything that you know Shapiro said about uh, uh, Cochran was was true. And, and I just didn't want to have to do all those footnotes, <laughs> and I just put it out there, and and anybody could respond if they wanted to respond. And he says that's not terrible reason you should have. And he demanded uh, uh, a retraction or something. And he and I said, okay, I, you know, I will write a letter to the. To the McGeorge Law Review was where it was published, and I, I wrote a letter saying I've known Alan Dershowitz all this time. He says it never happened, and I believe it, <laughs> um, which I do. And I and I think even today, with all of the stuff he's doing, I think he 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 believes it. He is. I do think he's a person of integrity. Um, uh, but uh, uh, so, but you know, we had a and and the, the, the law review instead of you know published the, the took a photocopy of the letter and printed the full page at the beginning of the next issue of wow. the, of the law review my letter about how I you know the, you know Dershowitz says it never happened and I believe it um, so uh, um, and did that satisfy him? Well, not exactly. It strained your friendship. Yeah, I remember when he came to class, you guys were good buddies. So this is very fascinating because a lot about OJ, you know, I got to comment on it. And Larry Schiller, who I think is the Schiller you're referring to, he ended up writing the best book about the Jean Benet case out of Boulder. But keep going with the Dirt stuff because. that well, man's I was just going to say, I, I, did, I mean, we are, we are, 
at least you know uh, friendly now. I mean, I, I was ta I taught at NYU for a semester, and he was around. And I think I think I had him talk to my class at NYU. Yeah, I did have him talk to my. No, I had him talk to my class at Brooklyn. That was but that was also right. Later. But wasn't that all pre-Trump? What do you make of his association with Trump and being on his impeachment defense team? And now he goes on Newsmax. Oh. He says some things that I find extraordinary, and I used to think he was smart as hell. Yeah, I think he's making a lot of really bad arguments. And I published, you know, he, I, I published an article on pardons recently, and he said, you know, the, you can't charge the the president with obstructing justice because he's pardoning these witnesses against him, and uh, and because the Constitution entitles the president to pardon anybody for any reason. And I thought that was, you know, really silly. And I took him to task for that. But I think he meant it. I don't think he was. I don't think he's. Um, uh, you know, selling out because he likes the the limelight. I don't. I mean, he does. I do think he likes the limelight, but uh, uh, I I think I do still think he's a person of integrity. Well, that's interesting, and uh, I think that once you start getting uh, tough opposition, people who are a lot meaner to him than you are as an old friend, but people turn on him, and it kind of drives somebody into a corner, right? And uh, I used to think Dennis Prager was a decent guy as a talk show host, and I didn't think it was right to censor some of the videos he put out. But then as he uh, got censored, the more he got censored, the more he went to the far right, and, and now he's kind of backing the big lie of Donald Trump. I mean... This big lie could destroy America. I mean, democracy, do you think it's in danger or are we overreacting? Yes. Yeah, no, I think it's in danger. I mean, it, it, people are not going to have confidence in the integrity of elections, which is just, you know, I, I mean, we've, we, we've always had faith in the, that our electoral system worked as, as uh, you know, more or less. We've had particular elections that we thought maybe there were some ballot stuffing and so forth. But basically, you know, especially at the, at the presidential level, we thought it, it worked pretty well. And now we, on the basis of no evidence, people have no confidence in it. That's a terrible thing for democracy. Right. And, and we're not going to go there except for Clarence Thomas, because wasn't he a Harvard guy, too? And Ginny Thomas, we could spend five hours on the Supreme Court, but we're not going to. But I thought Thomas went to Yale. But oh, I, did he? Yeah, he yes. went. So, okay. I think he went to Yale. Yeah. Regardless, <laughs> what's up with them? And can we do anything about it? Um well, no, we can't do anything about it. He's got he's got life tenure. I mean, we could, in theory, we could pack the Supreme Court, but it's that's certainly not going to happen. Um, what, I, uh, what about the integrity of this profession that you trained countless lawyers, Rudy Giuliani? I mean, what happens to lawyers? You've been observing the profession. How do we go so wrong? And don't you think lawyers have a special responsibility right now? Yes. Yes. I just, I, I mean, I just gave some money to an outfit that is, is uh, uh, filing petitions to disbar or otherwise discipline people who have. Project 65. Know, made, yeah, right. Um, you know, made, who've made perfectly frivolous arguments to and filed frivolous lawsuits. Well, let me tell you, this podcast has been anything but frivolous. It's been one of my favorites ever. You've been so generous with your time. 
just commit to me that if he gets arrested, I can call you back if if sure. that happens before the podcast gets published. Any any final thoughts from you, Professor? Uh, you really have been an important person no, in my life. We talk about once every what twenty years, but I I do think you know people say what well, what teacher do you remember? And maybe my memory is bad, but I, I'd say I remember Professor Alshuler because I wanted to be a basketball player, but that was ridiculous. And I ended up at CU Law School, and I knew business and real estate law kind of bored me because I heard my dad and brother talk about it at the dinner table. But then your class turned me on, and then I became a prosecutor for 16 years, and I was off to the races. So again, thank you for your role in my life. Okay, well, that makes it worthwhile, if, you know, to hear to hear something like that. Thank you, Craig. And how did you like your first podcast? How did I like my first? It was it was fun. It was All nice right. to touch well, base with you after after whatever however many years it's been. And you know, the other thing that I didn't bring up because you're strong as hell, but you battled COVID. You had a hell of a summer. We've been postponing this, but I think it was Bishared. I think it was meant to be that I talked to you. On this important day in American criminal justice history. Thanks a lot, Professor. Okay. Thank you. Take Craig. care. Bye bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end of life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs, and so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs, and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you, and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Hey, I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at craigscoloradolaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at Craig's Colorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. I have been thinking a lot about Liz Cheney 
As you know, I had Bob Levy on, professor from Colorado College, and Liz Cheney was a student of his, and she has great legacy at CC. And now we had on today Professor Allschuler from the University of Chicago, where Liz Cheney went, had his class for a very short time. But she's standing up courageously now, and she's identifying the problem and how serious it is. I'm going to play for you the entirety of her remarks in Jackson, Wyoming, on Tuesday night as she got slaughtered up there in our neighbor to the north. That's frightening. It's frightening if the Republican Party remains dominated by Donald Trump And if he ever gets back in power, God help us, America. Liz Cheney expresses those sentiments. And apropos of this show with Professor Altshuler, who tops me in terms of lawyer lineage, Liz Cheney is a lawyer, and she comes from a family of a lot of lawyers, and you will hear her brag about her own child not there because... Law school has just begun for yet another Cheney. I think lawyers have a special responsibility right now when it comes to democracy and the threat of Donald Trump. And I salute Liz Cheney for standing up by playing her thoughtful remarks in their entirety at the moment of the worst defeat in her home state at the hands of Donald J. Trump. Listen to this, please. Thank uh, all my family and pay a special tribute to uh, those who are here with us tonight. Uh, my mom and dad, Dick and Lynn Cheney. And my husband, Phil. <laughs> uh, and four of our five kids are here. Uh, Katie and Gracie and Philip and Richard are all here tonight. And... Elizabeth is uh, starting law school today, so we'll have another generation carrying on dedication to the Constitution and and to our freedom. Uh, A little over a year ago, I received a note from a Gold Star father. He said to me, standing up for truth honors all who gave all. And I have thought of his words every single day since then. I've thought of them because they are a reminder of how we must all conduct ourselves. We must conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the men and women who wear the uniform of this nation, and in particular of those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. This this is not a game. Every one of us must be committed to the eternal defense of this miraculous experiment called America. And at the heart of our democratic process are elections. They are the foundational principle of our Constitution. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear. But it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. 
no, no house seat, no office in this land is more important than the principles that we are all sworn to protect. And I well understood the potential political consequences of abiding by my duty. Our republic relies upon the goodwill of all candidates for office to accept honorably the outcome of elections. And tonight, Harriet Hegeman has received the most votes in this primary. She won. I called her to concede the race. This primary election is over, but now the real work begins. The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed, he saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of history. Speaking at Gettysburg of the great task remaining before us, Lincoln said that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from this earth. As we meet here tonight, that remains our greatest and most important task. Most of world history is a story of violent conflict, of servitude and suffering. Most people in most places have not lived in freedom. Our American freedom is a providential departure from history. We are the exception. We have been given the gift of freedom by God and our founding fathers. It has been said that the long arc of history bends toward justice and freedom. That's true, but only if we make it bend. Today, our highest duty is to bend the arc of history to preserve our nation and its blessings, to ensure that freedom will not perish, to protect the very foundations of this constitutional republic. Never in our nation's 246 years have we seen what we saw on January 6th. Like so many Americans, I assumed that the violence and the chaos of that day would have prompted a united response, a recognition that this was a line that must never be crossed, a tragic chapter in our nation's history to be studied by historians to ensure that it can never happen again. But instead, major elements of my party still vehemently defend those who caused it. At the heart of the attack on January 6th is a willingness to embrace dangerous conspiracies that attack the very core premise of our nation, that lawful elections reviewed by the courts when necessary and certified by the states and electoral college determine who serves as president. If we do not condemn the conspiracies and the lies, if we do not hold those responsible to account, we will be excusing this conduct, and it will become a feature of all elections. America will never be the same. Today, as we meet here, there are Republican candidates for governor who deny the outcome of the 2020 election and who may refuse to certify future elections if they oppose the results. We have candidates for Secretary of State who may refuse to report the actual results of the popular vote in future elections. And we have candidates for Congress, including here in Wyoming, 
who refused to acknowledge that Joe Biden won the 2020 election and suggests that states decertify their results. Our nation is barreling once again towards crisis, lawlessness, and violence. No American should support election deniers for any position of genuine responsibility where their refusal to follow the rule of law will corrupt our future. Our nation is young in the history of mankind, and yet we're the oldest democracy in the world. Our survival is not guaranteed. History has shown us over and over again how poisonous lies destroy free nations. Over the last several months, in the January 6th hearings, the American people have watched dozens of Republicans, including the most senior officials working for President Trump in the White House, the Justice Department, and on his campaign, people who served President Trump loyally, testify that they all told him the election was not stolen or rigged and there was no massive fraud. That's why President Trump and others invent excuses, pretexts, for people not to watch the hearings at all. But no citizen of this republic is a bystander. All of us have an obligation to understand what actually happened. We cannot abandon the truth and remain a free nation. To believe Donald Trump's election lies, you must believe that dozens of federal and state courts who ruled against him, including many judges he appointed, were all corrupted and biased. That all manner of crazy conspiracy theories stole our election from us and that Donald Trump actually remains president today. As of last week, you must also believe that 30 career FBI agents who have spent their lives working to serve our country abandoned their honor and their oaths and went to Mar-a-Lago not to perform a lawful search or address a national security threat, but instead with a secret plan to plant fake incriminating documents in the boxes they seized. This is yet another insidious lie. Donald Trump knows that voicing these conspiracies will provoke violence and threats of violence. This happened on January 6th, and it's now happening again. It is entirely foreseeable that the violence will escalate further. Yet he and others continue purposely to feed the danger. Today, our federal law enforcement is being threatened. A federal judge is being threatened. Fresh threats of violence are arising everywhere. And despite knowing all of this, Donald Trump recently released the names of the FBI agents involved in the search. That was purposeful and malicious. No patriotic American should excuse these threats or be intimidated by them. Our great nation must not be ruled by a mob provoked over social media. Our duty as citizens of this republic is not only to defend the freedom that's been handed down to us. We also have an obligation to learn from the actions of those who came before, to know the stories of grit and perseverance of the brave men and women who built and saved this union. In the lives of these great Americans, we find inspiration and purpose. In May of 1864, after years of war and a string of reluctant Union generals, Ulysses S. Grant met General Lee's forces at the Battle of the Wilderness.
In two days of heavy fighting, the Union suffered over 17,000 casualties. At the end of that battle, General Grant faced a choice. Most assumed he would do what previous Union generals had, had done and retreat. On the evening of May 7th, Grant began to move. As the fires of the battle still smoldered, Grant rode to the head of the column. He rode to the intersection of Brock Road and Orange Plank Road. And there, as the men of his army watched and waited, instead of turning north back towards Washington and safety, Grant turned his horse south toward Richmond and the heart of Lee's army. Refusing to retreat, he pressed on to victory. Lincoln and Grant and all who fought in our nation's tragic civil war, including my own great-great-grandfathers, saved our union. Their courage saved freedom. And if we listen closely, they are speaking to us down the generations. We must not idly squander what so many have fought and died for. America has meant so much to so many because we are the best hope of freedom on earth. Last week in Laramie, a gentleman came up to me with tears in his eyes. I'm not an American, he said, but my children are. I grew up in Brazil. I know how fragile freedom is, and we must not lose it here. A few days ago here in Jackson, a woman told me that her grandparents had survived Auschwitz. They found refuge in America. She said she was afraid that she had nowhere to go if freedom died here. Ladies and gentlemen, freedom must not, cannot, and will not die here. We must be very clear-eyed about the threat we face and about what is required to defeat it. I have said since January 6th, that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. This is a fight for all of us together. I'm a conservative Republican. I believe deeply in the principles and the ideals on which my party was founded. I love its history, and I love what our party has stood for but I love my country more. So I ask you tonight to join me. As we leave here, let us resolve that we will stand together, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, against those who would destroy our republic. They are angry and they are determined but they have not seen anything like the power of Americans united in defense of our Constitution and committed to the cause of freedom. There is no greater power on this earth. And with God's help, we will prevail. Thank you all. God bless you. God bless Wyoming. God bless the United States of America. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Michael Bailey, a friend a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get 
guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hooey, that was a great show. Talking to Professor Alshuler brought me back. Reading his article that are in my show notes, his article, Dave Gunder's YouTube, Dancing His Heart Out to I'm So Shy, back in the day, back in Boulder, back when I was there with Professor Alshuler. Love this podcast. I hope you did too. Please tell a friend, subscribe, five stars. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.